This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie. Stuart, welcome back. Great to be here, Reed. Thanks for asking me to the party. So, Stuart, it's hard to believe, but this Friday, December 17th, will be the two-year anniversary of the founding of The Lincoln Project. And it feels like much longer than that. It probably feels much longer than that for everybody, given where we were two years ago. So I want to talk about a little bit about like where we were when all this got going, what we've seen and where we're headed. So just to think about this, on December 17th, 2019, the general public, at least in the United States, had never heard the words coronavirus or COVID-19. And Donald Trump had not yet had his first impeachment trial, if you think about that. That wouldn't come until you know the following month, in the first month of 2020. And all of the things that have happened in this two years, politically, economically, socially, it's hard to believe that we've jam-packed that much into just 24 months. As you've seen it, you know, going back as much as you can to sort of those gauzy days pre-COVID, like what's your sense of the arc of how we've gotten to where we are? Well, look, I think that we're living in days that are going to be looked back upon in the same way we look back on, say, you know, 1860 or the Guns of August days before World War One. I. I, for one, believe that the parallels between where we are and where Germany was in the 1930s are painfully accurate. I think what the Lincoln Project did, and I can say this without any false modesty because I wasn't involved with it when you guys started it, I think that you as a group were the first really to see 2020 race with the clarity that ultimately became accurate, that the race was about Donald Trump, that Donald Trump was, as you know, I've heard you say before, the first 100 issues in the race, that Democrats couldn't run this as they ran the 2018 race, that it had to be about Donald Trump, which, you know, at the time, that was a controversial statement. You know, there was that alternative view that was not crazy. I think saying it was wrong, that whatever you said about Donald Trump was baked into the cake. There's not a person in the United States that hasn't come to a conclusion who was going to vote, who hadn't come to a conclusion about Donald Trump. So why don't you talk about issues? Because that'll be what motivates people. I think that the service that the Lincoln Project did from the very beginning of this race was helping frame what the race was about. And you guys did it at a time when Joe Biden was out there busy losing primaries. Well, I was going to say that, yeah, that, I mean, going back to that time too, that the front runners in the Democratic race for president were two senators, one named Bernie Sanders and the other one named Elizabeth Warren, with a whole bunch of other folks sort of bunched up. The Joe Biden nomination all fell together over the course of like 24, 36 hours, you know, months later. So we went also in assuming that there was a very good chance that we were going to have the first socialist nominee since Eugene V. Debs, you know, to work with. The whole Bernie thing, I find just so astounding because, you know, I went to college in Vermont, Middlebury College, and I can remember riding my bicycle down the main street of Burlington 
back way when and seeing this lunatic out on the street yelling about rent control. And that was Bernie running for mayor of Burlington. Um, and he won. And, you know, damn if he wasn't a good mayor. And say what you will about Bernie Sanders. I think in 2016, what he accomplished is astounding to come from nowhere. But, you know, it really goes to this question of what is the Democratic Party going to decide it is. And I, you know, it's a strange position to be in for somebody that spent, you know, a few decades trying to point out flaws in the Democratic Party. I think the Democratic Party is the party that is now responsible for saving democracy. Well, we had obviously the 2020, the year of the election. Now we are almost to the end here of 2021. And we're still in this weird middling place where, you know, look, I spent two days in Michigan early last week meeting with different advocates, political leaders, community leaders, and they all get it, right? When they look out at the political landscape, and certainly Michigan, I think, is ground zero for what's to come next year. But it does seem that, you know, we still have a lot of folks, both in the political and media elite, and frankly, a lot of otherwise intelligent, caring Americans who just either unwilling or unable to see what's upon us. And when you look historically, the pattern of how democracies end is when those who are on the pro-democratic side can't imagine losing. And that's just true over and over. I think it was true in Hungary. I think it was true in Germany. And this notion that somehow those who are conservative, who are on the right, who are not autocratic, this false assumption that they can somehow do a deal with evil to accomplish their short-term goals and to stay in power just never works. And I don't think we know how this story ends. So first of all, I'm currently rereading The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, which, if you have not read it, is an engaging read on the first month of World War I, written in 1963, and deserves every last plot it got. But, you know, Stu, to your point, it still feels like even with the stress and weight of a COVID world on top of us, you know, that there are some that still want to believe that the spring flowers for democracy are blooming, or at least aren't under threat of being trampled by the horses of autocracy. But I mean, is it possible to get enough individual Americans to sort of see this, to say, you know, most of the time you vote for an R or you vote for a D and you have this belief what those letters mean, but that's not what the fight is this time. I think the negative view of this is that we are in the middle of a pandemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans at an unprecedented rate, and yet we still have a large portion of the country that will not accept that this is a reality and take prudent steps to try to get back to normal, save people's lives. So if you're not going to recognize reality when it's killing you potentially and your neighbors and your loved ones, that doesn't bode well for something more ethereal like democracy. On the other hand, I think America has a history of flirting with disaster and saving itself, a role that often immigrants played a key role in. I mean, in the 1930s, there were tremendous fascist movement in America, and yet we didn't become fascist. To me, the greatest difference between this moment and anything that we've experienced is the complete collapse of the Republican Party as a normal political party. And I was thinking about this when Senator Dole died. And I worked for Senator Dole. That was the first presidential race that I was really seriously involved with. I traveled with him a lot, made a film about him. And that world that he described 
where the greater good comes before the personal good and the good for your own party is completely lost. And there is no core to the Republican Party that I can see that will stop autocracy. And, you know, you read these stories over and over about people who are in Congress who are actually physically afraid to do the right thing. And I'll be honest, maybe it's easy to say if you're not there, but I really don't have much patience with that. I mean, they're heirs to the greatest generation's legacy, and they can't even get their comm shop to put out a three-sentence statement congratulating the winner of the presidential election in the United States. The question here is, how do we stop the Republican Party from playing a major role in destroying democracy? So there was a story, Stuart, over the weekend in the New York Times about this growing concern amongst a lot of Democratic leaders that Republicans were doing a good job of recruiting candidates for local elections, county elections. You know, and I got an email from a big supporter of ours asking me about it. And we had a very thoughtful back and forth. But the first thing I said is like, this is not new news. Like they've been doing this for 40 years, right? Maybe they started at the gubernatorial level, the AG level, you know, the ag commissioner level, and then down into the state legislative races. But it's not unusual for them to just lever down one or two rungs on the ladder and say, okay, well, now we'll do school boards and county commissions and city councils. And so like, this is something that's been going on for a long time, whether or not it was ALEC or the National Conference of State Legislatures. It just feels like the scales are falling from so many people's eyes now. Well, I think to me, and again, this might be naive, but I think the difference is that the people, for the most part, that used to get elected in those offices still believed in democracy. And the difference now, and we can't say this enough, is the Republican Party's official position is that we don't live in a democracy, that Joe Biden is not a legally elected president, which means we live in an occupied country. So what they are electing out there now are people who believe they must restore democracy to the United States. They believe Donald Trump is the rightfully elected president of the United States. And this has never happened before. So it worries me a lot more when I read about these people getting elected to state boards, school boards, election officials than it did before, because ultimately I was always confident that they would do what it took to ensure that America still had a peaceful transition of power. And the motivation for so many of these people running is to, in their minds, at least they voice this, I'm not really sure how many of them believe it, they believe that they must restore democracy. And once you believe that, it gives you permission for a whole avenue of activity, much of it violent, that you not only have a right for sort of armed resistance, you have an obligation. And that becomes a moral framework that is extraordinarily similar to the white supremacy movement, the Ku Klux Klan. They believed they were doing literally the Lord's work. Well, we still see the significant crossover between today's Republican Party and, you know, white evangelical Christianity. It might be, not be a Christianity you grew up with, one that I grew up with, but they proclaim themselves arbiters of the Lord's will. And for some reason, I guess they've decided Donald Trump is the person to carry that cross and that torch forward. But the other part, too, was just going back to this back and forth I had with this gentleman. 
He said, don't you think that maybe the number one mission we need to have is ensuring the sanctity of free and fair elections? And I said, I think we're saying the same thing. I think that until and unless we defeat these people electorally and badly from school board all the way to the presidency, you're not going to have the sanctity of free and fair elections. And, you know, I think it requires those of us who were more center right to support, vote, fight for people whom we don't agree with ideologically in a lot of ways, because those people are the ones who still believe in democracy. And it's something, you know, you've said many times about conversation with Bernie Sanders, that you may disagree a lot with Bernie Sanders, but you'd like to get back to a system where you both agree, you want to get back to a system where you can have that disagreement. I think that that is very difficult for a lot of people who are sane, have grown up in a democracy, who have busy lives, to really force themselves to admit that we may be in what we'll look back on as the beginning of the end of American democracy. It's like a pandemic. You know, whatever you say at the beginning sounds alarmist. I mean, if we've been sitting around Christmas 2019 going into 20 saying, hey, look, come Christmas 2000 going into 22, 800,000 Americans have died of a disease we hadn't heard of. You know, you'd think that you'd gotten into eggnog a little too much. And the pattern here is when the unimaginable becomes inevitable. And it's extraordinarily dangerous. And I don't know where the voices are on the center right that are going to stand up and fight. So I think on the center right, from my perspective, my concern is that there is still this belief that, you know, the cancer has metastasized through the body. So if we cut the foot off or save the foot, like the body will regenerate somehow. I'm very appreciative of what Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Peter Meyer are trying to stand for. But they are not the mainstream of the Republican Party leadership or of its base voters. And they're not going to be for some amount of time. And so to me, that sort of unwillingness or, again, inability to understand and believe that and act accordingly, I think, is concerning. But I want to go back to something you said about what people are willing to do, which earlier today, as we're taping this, I had a guy named Jay Van Bavel on, who's a New York University professor. And he and some colleagues just did an analysis of the words that Donald Trump used on the mall on January 6th. And it was significant, unifying language. They said he used we, us, those sorts of things, something like 340 times. It was once every 30 words. But the other thing he said was that Donald Trump never gives direct orders. He just says, you know, go up there or we should do this or we can't let this stand. But because of who he is and how he's acted, to your earlier point, they've deconstructed all of the guardrails that we previously took for granted. And so now, to your point, this ugliness and the rhetoric intimidation is now par for the course. It's not foreign anymore. Yeah, I mean, this is how it happens. The history of Germany is German aristocrats, for the most part, who believed correctly that they really had no connection to the working class and that the choice before them was bring Hitler in who could speak to the working class or for the country to become Bolshevik. I mean, I, I've talked about this many times. If you go back to Franz von Papen, who really was more responsible for ushering in Hitler than any single individual, in 1953, when he wrote his memoir, he's still justifying that. Well, but to continue that from that period of, let's say, the early 1920s, because I am re-listening to The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire, which is a short 55 hours. So you can knock it out in a weekend, probably. But the one thing that Shire said, and I was listening to it this weekend, Stu, that really 
was yet another wake-up call was that Hitler realized as he was formulating his political philosophy, he instinctively knew that ugliness, violence, and terror would cause what they would have called the bourgeoisie, we would call it, say, the middle, upper middle class suburbanites, to recoil. And the outcropping of that retreat would be that they wouldn't stand in the way, that they had enough that they wanted to hold on to, that they weren't going to go out into the streets and, you know, rumble with a bunch of brown shirts. And therefore, you had the aristocrats who thought they could manage it and want to protect their own resources, the working class who were resentful enough to take up arms and anger, and the middle class, the predominant part of the population, stood by and let it happen. So, you know, I think in this moment, that instinct is embodied by the two minority leaders in the United States Congress. You have Mitch McConnell, right? You are hiding out in your own office. Your colleagues are being hunted by terrorists who the person you have supported has encouraged, and you still won't vote to convict that person. And you look at Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy's under this incredibly childish idea that he's going to be able to deal with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and that if they just regain Congress, he'll be speaker. It's like, man, have you never read history? I mean, you're going to be right there in Madame Defarge's list, man. They're going to roll you to the guillotine. They don't want you. You're just a way to get to the next stage. Right. He's a means to an end. As is for, I think, largely speaking, so is the Republican Party itself structurally. It's a means to an end. You know, the horrible realization is the Republican Party is what it wants to be. No one is making the Republican Party do this. It is not an impulsive thing that it's doing. It is a path that an element of the party has been engaged in since World War II. And the party has now decided that that side, the Joe McCarthy side, the racist side, the xenophobic side, the side that has little connection to reality, that's who the Republican Party is. And those who don't agree with it gave up without a fight. That's how we end up here. And this is why I say you have to burn the Republican Party to the ground. Well, and I will say this too, you know, to your point about showing up to the fight. I think just thinking back again on two years of the Lincoln Project, I think the one thing that helped us get off the ground initially, because we were going to put this op-ed in the New York Times, I thought people would think was mildly interesting. And then, you know, we'd raise a couple bucks before the end of the year, was that I think people were finally like, oh, good. Someone showed up to fight. Someone showed up to stand up and, you know, punch this guy in the nose. And I still think that that's what a lot of people are looking for. I saw there's a friend of mine on Twitter who said today, to win a battle, you got to show up. And that's absolutely right. So just to turn this to like sort of, you know, domestic policy for a second, not to bore everybody. So we have this continuing fight over the Build Back Better Act, right, which is social safety net thing. It's my contention, Stuart, that they're probably not going to get Build Back Better done, which is going to delay probably and, you know, deny any vote on a Voting Rights Act which means that we'll have these awful rules in a lot of these states come November 2020. And Joe Biden's infrastructure bill might be the last piece of major public policy that gets enacted for years. Well, that's the recipe for disaster. That is how powers crumble. God, I hope you're wrong. I hope so. Listen, <laughs> because, that's the thing. We keep being right, and I hate it. I know. That's the problem. We're tired of being right. I mean, what I would just, I would get down on my knees and I would beg every Democrat who votes in Congress to realize you are not going to be remembered as a public figure, as a human being, 
as a member of society. You are not going to be remembered as a person that voted to get 1.8 trillion passed or 2.2 or 1 trillion passed. No one is going to remember those numbers. You're going to be remembered as a person who either saved democracy or lost democracy. And that is your legacy. And it will haunt you the rest of your life. And if you don't realize that, you have no sense of where we are as a country. And ask yourself, not what it means to you personally, because probably you'll be fine. But what does it mean to your kids, your grandkids? What does it mean to the world if the United States is basically an autocracy? The evil that will be permeated across the world, and it's no different than if the America first isolationist had carried the day in the 30s and early 40s. Very likely the Germans would have won. And so, like, I understand that in the modern congressional mind that you never bring up a vote unless you know you're going to win, right? I take a different approach. Call the vote on the John Lewis Act in the United States Senate. Say, we're going to bring it up. We're going to vote on it. And the people in this chamber will have history to contend with. The Rob Portmans, the Pat Toomeys, even the Mitch McConnells, they're going to have to make that choice, you know, and they'll be, you know, oh, well, you know, they're not going to let it pass. You know, they won't get to cloture. Fine. We'll get rid of the filibuster for this one. They just did it for the debt limit. So clearly they can do it whenever they feel like it. But if I were Schumer, I'd say we're calling the vote. Let the chips fall where they may. We're going to double down on this because the idea that another six weeks, eight weeks, three months worth of haggling with people one party of which, half of which don't want to take the issue up in the first place, gives everybody the out to say, we just couldn't get it done. Well, you never tried. You never tried to get it done. The vote is what will count. The haggling and everything else is fine, but you have to put them on the spot. And so I would say this, that we've been telling ourselves and we've been talking to people, well, can you get voters to vote on democracy? Is that really something that's going to motivate them? And, you know, I'd sort of talk myself out of it. You know, what are we going to make it about? And I think that, Stuart, the thing that we were uniquely able to do last year is the thing that I think we're still uniquely able to do, which is we assert what matters. And oftentimes we find that people follow us down. Democracy matters. Democracy matters for everything, whether or not it's the air we breathe, where our kids go to school, how our seniors are treated, how the rest of the world views us and we view it. It matters to everything because without it, it's all arbitrary. Right. It's all up to some guy with, you know, a bad dye job and a fake tan deciding how he feels that day and what's going to spark his interest. And that's I don't think how most of us 330 million Americans want to live our lives. I think in life you don't get in fights because you think you can win. You get in fights because they're important. And if you're not in the fight, you're not going to win. And you have to go out and define what is at stake and fight for that. People follow courage in the same way that they follow cowardice. And this is the essence of, does a mob become a lynch mob or does it become a mob that stands against those who want to lynch? And it turns usually on a few people. And I think what we've learned about the Republican Party, about particularly those in Congress is, there is no sustaining coalition of the decent. So don't count on Republicans. There's nothing there. So it's really up to the Democratic Party to do this. And they have to act like this, because otherwise, if you act like it's a normal time, you have 
allow the others to win. So when I was a senior in college, I worked at a bar in Austin, Texas, and there was a woman I worked with and she was the daughter-in-law of the owner. And one night I'm working the door and I probably had a couple of pops, which I shouldn't have done. And a guy comes in very late after last call and wants a beer. And this woman says, can't give you one. It's after last call. He says something very nasty to her. And I go up, not only my role as doorman, but also because I've got enough liquid courage in me to say, you know, that's enough of that. Get the hell out of here. I'm sure I was far more colorful than that. And he smacks me in the face and says, aren't you cute? And I smack him in the face and said, not as cute as you. And then he hit me in the head with a beer bottle. <laughs> and I ended up in the backseat of a Honda bleeding, gushing from the face, smoking a cigarette, going, what the hell just happened? But, you know, if I'd been sober, right, if I'd had all my faculties, there was never going to be any other response, right? She was doing her job. She was a dear friend of mine. And this guy came in and thought he could act however he wanted to act. Now, did I lose the fight? I did. Did he go to jail? He did. Do I ever look back at the scars on my face and say I did the wrong thing? I never do. And once in a while, you got to step up. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, what I thought was key principles, values that Republicans believed in, you don't negotiate with terrorists and you can't negotiate with evil. And what is happening inside the Republican Party is nothing but evil. And if you don't fight evil, why did you get into public life? But look, I mean, one of the depressing realizations I've come to is maybe we shouldn't be surprised by cowardice. We should only be surprised by courage. Maybe what's happening is what normally happens. And the United States has been blessed by having men and women of courage at key times. And the question is, out: do we have those men and women now? And I don't think we know the answer to that. Well, I don't think we know if we have enough of them, but I do know that they exist. And I think this is the other thing, too, Stuart, that I think that we we as the good guys and we are we are the good guys in this fight, guys. Right. This is a moral argument. This is a right versus wrong argument. Right. You can talk about shades of gray all you want. There's a good side and there's a bad side here. And don't let anybody say, oh, we can't be that reactionary, blah, 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 blah. Like we've seen what these people are going to do. Stuart, for Christ's sakes, they created a PowerPoint of their coup attempt. <laughs> right. Like. You know, as Rick likes to say, when someone bad says they're going to do something, believe them. They tend to be telling you exactly what they're going to do. But, you know, whether or not it's African-American leaders in, you know, urban centers, whether or not it's rural voters, whether or not it's veterans, leagues of women voters, individual Americans every day who otherwise would never have been interested in this stuff. I mean, I'll tell you this. I've been all over the country this year. It's fascinating. In person, the more progressive the activist outside the beltway, the more they understand the threat and say, yes, I'm really glad that you guys are here. And you're right. We probably don't agree on a lot more, but we're glad you're here and let's get to work. And like that heartens me in all these places where we're all going to have to compete next year because, you know, everybody talks about resources. Yeah, money is a big part of politics. There's no question about it, but that's not going to be the deciding factor next year. Resources are going to be, relatively speaking, evenly matched. So the question is, how do we begin the process of building, as I've said before, the broadest and deepest pro-democracy coalition the country's seen in 160 years. Yeah, you know, when I have Democratic friends, you know, they've heard this rumor we were Republicans and are kind of like, so what do we do with you? How do we think of you? My answer is always very simple. It's like, think of us as useful. <laughs> That's it. You don't have to think we're good people. If you want to compare us to Stalin and it's going to be like an alliance here, fine. You know, I mean, we haven't like 
had any you know genocide or gulags lately but still okay fine that's all right because that's all that matters and i think that we have a certain standing here because we know these people we're the ones that should be out there saying it's not as bad as you think i mean this idea somehow that the easiest way is not to just go along is insane I mean, to turn against your own party, to turn against all your friends, it's like you say, your groomsmen, so many of them, it means that something there you think is important. And I hope we can be witnesses to, as Rick says, just how bad these people are and what they want. They do not want to have a pluralistic democracy such that we have known in our lifetimes. You cannot look at a Stephen Miller, a Jason Miller, a Kellyanne Conway, you cannot look at these people and believe this is what they want because they don't. And we should not grace them with the benefit of the doubt. They are guilty. They are wrong. They are evil. And they should be treated as such. Right. I think a lot of this is sort of the collective PTSD of the COVID era in which we're still in the middle of. But Trump's hand-picked White House goons sent hundreds of thousands of Americans to their deaths because they said they live in blue states. We're not going to help them. Yeah, all of those people should not be allowed to be part of public society. I mean, everybody from Peter Navarro to Kellyanne Conway. These are people who have barrels of blood on their hands and they should be held accountable. And it's up to a society to decide what you think is important. But this is not a world in which Good people of political differences can argue about this point or that point. There are people out there who, to hold on to power, were willing to attempt to allow hundreds of thousands of people to die and have placed in motion a culture of death that continues with COVID. These are not good people. They're not. And as they said, gang, we should not shy away from that fact. Uh, in fact, if anything, we should use it as a motivator. Are these the people we really want to allow in charge? I mean, I think, Stu, as we think about this going to 2022, you know, is Marjorie Taylor Greene going to lose her congressional seat? She's probably not. But holding her up as an example of what you're going to get if these people are in charge could be a very powerful thing. And it's going to have to be, to your point about the examples, right? Greene is one of them. Greg Abbott in Texas is another. These people do bad things for the wrong reasons, and they have no compunction. And the people like Abbott, who, as you know, we've known for a long time, know better, might be worse than the true believers because they know they shouldn't do it and they do it anyway. So, you know, Stuart, as we begin year three of the Lincoln Project, you know, our mission began as defeating Donald Trump and his aiders and abettors. We were successful on part one, not as successful on part two. But now part two, those people have become, you know, they have metastasized, right? They have multiplied and they will be in local, state, federal races all across this country. And so, we're going to have a lot more to share as far as where we're going to be operating, a lot more opportunities for volunteerism for us and for our allied organizations. And Stu, if there's one thing that you know we can close out this two-year anniversary episode with, what would it be for the folks as they're starting to hunker down for the Christmas season, spend time hopefully with family and friends safely? What would you ask our folks to think about as we give them a couple weeks respite before we get back to work? What's at stake? If you've ever wanted to ask yourself, what would you have done in 1860? Which side of the Edmund Pettus Bridge would you have been on? This is that moment. And you have to choose because not to choose is to choose. 
And a lot of times in life, these things are inconvenient. I mean, most people in 1860 did not want to have this catastrophic war, but this is our moment. And what's being asked of us when you compare it to what's been asked of other previous generations is pretty small. And are we going to rise to the occasion or are we not? No, and that, that was one thing, gang, just to close it out, when I had Beto O'Rourke on the podcast this summer, which we reran right after, I should say, he announced for governor of Texas, you know, we're not asking people to wait for the ramp to drop on the landing craft and storm onto Omaha Beach. We're just asking you to get off the couch. Some people can do more than others. That's totally fine. But if we all do what we can, if you tell your friends, now is this time, there are more of us than there are of them. There is no question in my mind. The question is, are we going to wake up in time and get off our asses and make happen what we need to make happen? And I think we will, Stuart. And I know that's a countervailing opinion and probably one that doesn't comport with you know history or reality. But I'll tell you, if I wasn't an optimist, I wouldn't get out of bed every morning. Yeah, if we've already lost, there's no point in doing what we're doing. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Stuart, before we let folks go, where can they find you on social media? For better or worse, I'm on Twitter, Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. All right. And as always, everybody can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to thank Stuart again for joining me and everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com